as we stand together. Heavenly Father, it is indeed our prayer that we would, in our gathering together this morning, uh, we would, in our hearing of your word, glorify you. And so we do pray that as we listen to your word that we would receive it as it really is, uh, the word of our creator and saviour, the word that leads to life. Uh, Help us to trust you and help us to respond with obedience. Amen. Please take a seat. And uh, it's worth turning back to 1 Corinthians 11 that Heather read out for us earlier as we continue our way through this series in the letter to the Corinthians. Uh, Chapter 11, we're up to page 1151 uh, of the Church Bibles and on the back of the service sheet is an outline of uh, where we'll be heading as we look at the first 16 verses of chapter 11. The feminist revolution is one of the most significant agents of change our world has seen in recent history. It's a movement that insists that the non-biological differences between men and women are cultural constructs, uh, constructs of a society, a patriarchal society dominated by men. It's a movement that sought to overthrow that sort of thinking and the effects of that sort of thinking. And so it was a revolution that propelled women out of the uh, restriction of just the home and into the wider world of work and education and politics. It's a revolution that has brought about much change and much good change. And we now have the common occurrence of women of great ability and stature in key positions in the business world. And the same is true in the political world. Uh, Margaret Thatcher, an imposing figure in the 20th century political world, Uh, In Australia right now our our Prime Minister is a woman by the name of... I've forgotten her name. (laughs) I've been gone too long. Uh, In Germany uh, the Chancellor is Angela Merkel, Julia Gillard. That's it, there you go. (laughs) Vote one, Julia. Um, There's much gain in what has happened in uh, just a few years really since the feminist revolution really took hold. Uh, Much benefit from these changes. Uh, But like all human-inspired revolutions, it's ultimately failed to deliver on its promises. Many women have found the path that the feminist revolution promised towards self-fulfilment and self-assertiveness is not the promised land. It turns out all too often that uh, reaching those places is reaching a place of sadness and loneliness, just as it has been for men before them. But for women there is the added exhaustion of not only being called upon to take on these new roles but to continue in the roles they used to have. Now called to be superwomen, juggling full-time careers and home life, all left to them. And the revolution, while it has changed roles for many men and women, it has failed to change hearts. Instead of elevating women to a place of equality and dignity, we enter the early years of the uh, 21st century with a society in which women have never been more maligned and objectified than they are now. Take, for example, the, uh, the recent uh, upheaval with super injunctions in the, the media that uh, men, especially rich men, can behave as they did in the Victorian era, silencing women that they have damaged sexually just by paying them off. Or the uh, rise and rise and rise of sexual abuse and now at its highest figure ever. As a generation of men, uh, men post the feminist revolution are raised to have uh, no view of women other than that they have been taught by pornography. And the confusion of the feminist revolution spreads to men too. 
Uh, some are so unsure of what it means to be a man that their identity has become emasculated, almost asexual. Or others, uh, it has the opposite effect. They regress into some sort of brutish, twisted form of masculinity, if you could call it that. In the end, it was a movement that seemed to know a lot about what it was against, but not what it was for. It's a revolution that has changed the ground we stand on, but left us without a map. And so as Paul writes this letter, he writes a letter to the Corinthian church shaped by another revolution altogether. The movement, uh, the revolution that has swept Paul up in its wake, that has swept us up as well, was a revolution that didn't just mark the turning point of one century, but all history. A revolution that took place so quickly it happened in just one weekend. It's described this way in simple terms for us in chapter 15 of this letter, 1 Corinthians. For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. The revolution that was brought about by the death, burial and then resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth has changed everything forever. Nothing can be viewed the way it used to before that event not least of all how we view ourselves as men and women. God, by his, the resurrection of his Son, has made all things new. We are a new creation. The old distinctions and divisions and favouritisms that so marked our culture, our sinful culture, are to be done away with, this side of the revolution. All is relativised by its relationship to the raised Christ crucified. And it's a resurrection that has brought this community into existence. A community no longer clothed by our culture which changes over time but clothed instead, we're told in Galatians 3, with Christ. That's our identity marker now. But again, such was the pace of that revolution that the community formed by Christ crucified, now risen, all too often found their heads spinning as they tried to tease out the implications of what it would mean for them. What does it mean for me, a man, or you, a woman, to be part of this community, the community that Jesus' revolution has brought about? Well, for the Corinthians, in our passage today, we see for them, when it comes to being men and women, it meant a nullifying of the gender distinctions. All that was a thing of the past. As they tried to keep in step with the rapid changes that Jesus' resurrection was bringing about and also the proto-feminist movement that was sweeping through Corinth, not unlike our feminist movement, the new Corinthian woman who would uh, not uh, throw away her bra, she would throw away her head covering. Freedom at last. And it's a confusion that uh, has made its way all the way to the 21st century community of Jesus We still struggle, do we not, to know what it means to be men and women in this community, the community that Jesus has brought about, trying to keep in step with everything that his revolution has brought about but also keep in step with our culture. How do we balance those two? And I imagine for some, if not all of us here, we struggle with that, struggle with a way forward to know the differences between men and women in this community. And it's a struggle you see writ large in the wider Church of England. Uh, Some view our refusal in the Church of England to ordain women as bishops as the last bastion of male chauvinism, the last tower yet to fall. So there seems much confusion. 
brought about, I believe, by two factors. For some, it's a sincere desire to live out the implications of something like the feminist revolution. We want, as a community, as the Christian community, to be leaders in cultural transformation, leaders in progress, not stragglers. And then there's also a sincere but misunderstood reading of the implications of Jesus' resurrection for our relationships as men and women. What has changed because of it? And for me, that's what makes this teaching here in 1 Corinthians 11 so very helpful. Into that confusion, into a culture which is being swept along by various human-led revolutions, we have the very word of God speaking into that situation. Paul, the apostle of Jesus Christ to the nations, to people like you and I, teaches us here what it means to be men and women in the community of Jesus. And as we start to listen to him, let me give you two crucial reasons to listen very carefully to him. Firstly, verse 2. Verse 2 of our passage. That tells us that this teaching that we listen to here is not a mere opinion on this subject, uh, in a sea of opinions that, that we balance together. It is the teaching of the apostle. The apostle called and authorised by the risen Lord Jesus to proclaim the risen Lord Jesus and the implications of his resurrection to his people. It is the word of the messenger of the king. This is the word of the king that you bow your knee before as a Christian. And so the appropriate response, as you see there in verse 2, is to hold very carefully to this teaching. And so as we hear it this morning, we must carefully and humbly listen with a view to obeying it. Here's the first reason to listen and here's the second. Uh, right at the end of our passage, verse 16, while this issue is contentious in our culture and even in the wider Church of England, it need not be. Paul says in verse 16, if anyone wants to be contentious about this, we have no other practice, nor do the churches of God. This is quite simple, says Paul. So let's listen carefully and humbly that we might obey And as we listen, here essentially is uh, what Paul will teach us. The revolution that Jesus' resurrection brings about, it brings about a radical restoration of the nature and purpose of God's creation of man and woman. That's what Jesus' resurrection does. Let me say it again. The Jesus' revolution brings about a radical restoration of the nature and purpose of God's very good creation of man and woman. And let's look at that under three headings that you can see there on your outline. The first of them is the principle of headship and this is what we must get clear first if we're to get any further on it. And verse 3 really is the key verse for us to understand. As far as Paul is concerned, at the foundation of any relationship, whether it be in heaven or on earth, is the concept of headship. Verse 3 he says, Now I want you to realise that the head of every man is Christ and the head of a woman is man. And the head of Christ is God. The Greek word uh, kephale here in verse 3 is a metaphor translated head. And over time there's been sort of two lines of argument as to what the word means. Some argue that it means source, implying origin, like the head of a river. But by far the most common meaning and always the meaning in the scriptures when it's referring to people is authority, as in head teacher or head master or head of state. And so in the scriptures, whenever kephale is used to refer to people, it always carries with it the idea of authority, never never without it. And in the context, I believe, of verse 3, any other reading makes no sense. 
For as we know, the Father is not the source of the Son. He is the head of the Son. He is in authority over him. And so we can be very confident as we look at verse 3 that head here means authority. And so let's look at these three relationships that Paul describes. They're going to establish for us the principle of headship by which we understand our relationship of men and women. The first one I want to look at is the, the final one he mentions there, really I think the most foundational, and that is that God the Father is the head of Christ. If we're going to have any clue about what it means to be men and women in this community, we first need to know something of the nature of the God who has made us in his image. All throughout the scriptures it is clear that the God who made us is Trinity. One God, three persons, Father, Son, Spirit, in relationship, equal in dignity and yet very distinct in role. They are a fellowship with clear headship. You could say they are a hierarchical fellowship. All the way through John's Gospel, Jesus is very clear in saying that he does nothing of himself, only what he sees his Father doing. The Father in turn loves the Son and has given all things to him and the Spirit speaks of the Son. And in this same letter that we're reading today, 1 Corinthians, by the end of the letter in chapter 15, we're told that one day the King, Jesus, will hand back the kingdom to his Father. He knows he is under his Father's authority. It is a fellowship with clear headship and submission. But not as we understand those words or not as we understand the word hierarchy, a sort of a master-slave, a relationship of unequals. Rather it is a relationship of mutual interdependence with distinct roles, a leader and a helper. The early church fathers knew how wonderful this relationship was, this reality of the Trinity was and they came up with a word to describe it, perichoresis. It means the divine dance, that's how they describe this relationship. One leads, the other submits. That's how a dance works. That's what makes their dance, the dance of the Father, the Son and the Spirit, so wonderful to watch. It's a relationship shaped by grace. One leads in love, the other submits in love. And it's worth realising that this leadership and submission within their relationship, that's not the end goal in itself. What that does is reach, get them to the goal, which is fellowship. Out of that fellowship they act as co-workers in God's great cause in the world, the cause he's always had, bringing life and blessing to the world. It's often argued that to say, as Paul does very clearly say in verse 3, that man is the head of a woman is to, by definition, deny her equality and dignity. But surely as we look at this first relationship between the father and the son, that is ruled out totally, is it not? If the son, who is equal who is the one for whom, by whom and through whom all things were created, who is the one before whom every knee will bow, if he was able to subordinate himself to his father, and he was, and it didn't damage his dignity but enhance it, why would we think it would damage ours? Paul will say to us in this chapter that the relationship between men and women is to be a reflection of the relationship between the father and the son. So there's the first relationship. The second is this, Christ is the head of every man. The, the headship and submission that is within God's relationship to himself is also within his relationship to creation. And of course there is a clear head, isn't there? Christ is the head. He leads and he expresses his leadership, his headship, his authority as what? A servant. 
He leads with sacrificial leadership. He gives himself for everyone he is head over. And he leads with sanctifying leadership. He leads in a way where he is committed utterly to cause to flourish those who are under him. That's what gospel headship is all about. Christ is our head and our part in the dance, well it's very simple, joyful submission. Submission to the one who, we, who is utterly committed to our good. And wonderfully again, like his father before him, he calls us into the work that he is about in this world. We are his complementary helpers. Christ the head and we the church are suitable helper for him, made so by his cross. About the same work that he and his father are about, spreading life and blessing to this world. So there's the relationship within God himself which has headship in it. There is his relationship to creation and then within creation itself we come to this third relationship. Man is the head of woman. And again it is intended to be like a dance. But I reckon at this point this is where our troubles start. Up to this point we can say I can sort of understand how that might work for God and I can sort of understand that I I definitely understand that Christ is in charge of me But now you're saying that man is head of woman. This is where the wheels fall off. Every fibre in my 21st century being says, no, that doesn't work. Perhaps in Paul's culture that might have worked, but we've moved on. But Paul says if you've moved on, it means you've moved away from God's purposes. In our relationships as men and women, it means that you've stopped dancing. So why is man the head of woman, according to Paul? Well, he's really already told us in the two relationships we've just seen within God and between God and his creation, but now in this passage he elaborates to help us grasp the implications of this. First, the principle of male headship over women is based on the nature and purpose of the Trinity. The relationship of leader and helper between men and women is no accident. It's fashioned after the most wonderfully functioning, joyful relationship this world has ever seen. Father, Son and Spirit. They want us in on what they've got. There's nothing as good or as purposeful as our God, Father, Son and Spirit. And in his love he's made us like them, as men and women. Made for relationships of mutual love and interdependence. Made for submission and servant leadership. Made to dance. Made as complementary workers. And this is made clear by the second basis for the headship of man over women which you see in verses 8 and 9. The principle of male headship over women is based on God's very good creation order. Have a look at verse 8. The woman is the glory of man, says verse 7, but man did not come from woman, but woman from man. Woman came out of man's rib. And she came from man because that is the nature God intended for her. God in his very good creation gave woman the very nature he planned. It wasn't out came the woman, Ooh, that's going to be a problem. It was exactly as he intended. Intended to have a relationship with to the man where she was his honour. She was created in such a way as to bring honour to the man and God saw that relationship and said, very good. And he wasn't alone. As soon as man laid eyes on the woman in Genesis 2, he delights in her and he says, very good. Which in turn honours God's creation order. 
As she honours the man by living out her nature and he delights in that nature, they echo back to God together, yes, very good. So man is ahead of woman because that is the nature God gave them at creation. For woman came out of man. And then there's this second reason in verse 9. Man is the head of woman because that is the purpose God gave them. Not only the nature but the purpose. We're told there, neither was man created for woman but woman for man. She's the perfect partner in the dance leading to the spread of life and blessing. God has given them a nature and a purpose that will enable them to work together to that end. He's designed it just the way he wanted it. And so now in the community of Jesus Christ, men and women are restored to that purpose, bringing life and blessing to the world through the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, working together in that. Now just in case we misunderstand the point of this dance, uh, man as head, woman as helper, Paul says in verses 11 and 12, you need to know that there is in no sense that men are better than women. That's not what I'm talking about here, he says. Because in truth neither is independent of the other, they need each other. Woman came from man, yes, but man is born of woman. And women have have been created for man's sake as helpers, as partners, but without her he's dancing alone. alone. In the glorious work of spreading life and blessing in the world, both man and woman need each other. They are both a gift from God to the other. And so in a world like ours where relationships between men and women are often ugly and disjointed and cruel competitions, God in his creation and now in his recreation in Christ calls us as his community to dance. And so we come to the implications of the principle of headship for us as a community formed by him. Three implications, three steps if you like in the dance. And here's the first one. A woman ought to live in a way that shows she willingly submits to her head. That's the implication of headship. Verse 9, Paul puts it this way. He says the woman ought to have a sign of authority on her head. A sign that makes it obvious to others that the way she is living she knows her role in the dance. For the Corinthians the obvious sign was head covering and some of the women had stopped showing that obvious sign. She was to play a full and vital role in the life of the church. We're told here she prayed and prophesied but she was to do it in a way that honoured a man's headship over her by submitting. So this is the first implication and then there's one for men as well. A man ought to live in a way that shows he is taking seriously his role as head. In the same way that the woman needed to deliberately act to demonstrate her role, so too did the man. And for the Corinthian men, that that meant this. In verse 4, it meant not covering their heads, as some of the especially rich Corinthian men had started doing. It was the fashion at the time, and so they put head coverings on. And Paul is saying, no, you 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 are getting rid of the one clear sign we have that says that the roles that we have in the community. To cover their heads was to dishonour their head, Christ. To fail to take on their role was to dishonour him and his purposes. And so as he played, the man played his vital role in the life of the community, he was to do so as the one who leads with authority as Christ did his church. And one final implication, the man and the woman should take up their complementary roles in humble interdependence before God. Both dependent on each other. So there it is. 
the revolution that Jesus' death and resurrection brings about in our relationships as men and women. It is a radical restoration of the nature and purpose he gave us at creation as men and women. And while it is contentious in our culture and in the Church of England, it need not be. It's wonderful. Now this is how C.S. Lewis put it. He said, The person who cannot conceive of a joyful and loyal obedience on one hand or an unembarrassed and noble acceptance of another's obedience on the other, the one who has never wanted to kneel or bow is a prosaic barbarian whose taproot to Eden has been cut. These are the ones to whom no rumour of the polyphony the dance can reach. You see, God's dream for his creation of men and women to share in relationship with himself and then with each other, that dream didn't die at the fall. With the gospel of Christ crucified and risen comes news of the restoration of those relationships. The gospel is our call as men and women to rejoin that dance. God says to us within this community formed by the resurrection of his son, this is a place where you learn to dance. He says of this church, this community, I'm going to give you a place where I will fence it in with grace and repentance and forgiveness and accountability and my spirit dwelling with you as you learn to dance again. You'll not be perfect this side of heaven, but here is a place to learn and demonstrate these relationships. So what's it going to mean as we head towards a close for us as a community It won't mean wearing head coverings as the Corinthians did. That was a clear sign of headship then but it's almost meaningless in the Western world now. So how can we as men and women take our equal role but different roles seriously? Well, Let me leave you with two places where I think that can be done. I'm really just going to give you some ideas and let me encourage you, especially those of you who are in small groups because I know most of you will be looking at this passage this week to to think deeply about this together, wrestle with the principle of headship but then also spend good time applying it. I think the key question we need to ask in any situation is how can I apply the principle of male headship here? And the key in that question is not looking for ways to avoid applying it but looking for ways to participate in it. And so that's true of family life, in our marriages and I think that's primarily what Paul has in mind here in chapter 11 Let me ask uh, the married couples here, in your marriage, your private marriage, uh, the marriage behind doors, does the way you speak to one another reflect the principle of headship? Wives, do your words to your husband honour him or shame him? Husbands, do your words uh, to your wives serve her or serve you? Does the way you think of one another uh, reflect the principle of headship? Women are your thoughts honouring of your husband. Men are your thoughts servant thoughts. Does the way you decide things reflect the principle of headship? Are you competitors or partners? Men, do you lead in decision making? Women, do you let them? I mean, most of the decisions our married couples make are fairly simple and we just sort of make them as we go along. But every now and then there are those big ones, aren't there, that, that there's real differences of opinion on and they're hard. Who makes those decisions? I think for Liz and I being married over about 10 years now, uh, there's not many times where we've had decisions like that, but I remember one of them was whether we uh, moved to Sheffield or not. Uh, as, as we were starting to think through that, early on in the process, Liz was very convinced that was a bad idea. And uh, we, we talked about it, we prayed about it, we talked more, we prayed more, we talked to others, 
And then I remember getting to the point where I said to her, I said, uh, if you don't want us to go, we, we won't go. And her response, not in exact words, but the gist of it was this, be a man. <laughs> Own the consequences of this decision. This is your decision. If it's a dud decision, you're wearing the consequences, not me. <laughs> so let me encourage you in your relationships to work, partner together, dance together, but know there will be times when men, you will need to be men. <laughs> and what about your marriage in public? Now, women, how do you relate to your husband in public? Does it reflect the delight in his leading? And when he's not there with you in public, how do you speak of him to others? Is it honouring? Men, do you lead your marriage in public? What about in church life? Men, are you leading your family in their ministry as part of this church family or is that for your wife and children to take care of? You're doing other things. You are co-workers in the the work of spreading life and blessing and this is your community. Own your job. It doesn't mean that men should feel compelled to serve in ways they feel they're not gifted in but you are to lead with the gifts that God has given you and he has given you many. Women, let him lead. Even if you think you could do a better job, you may well be able to do a better job. But the principle of headship is not about competence but God's purposes. Trust him. He's very wise. What about the wider sphere? Not only our own personal households but this household of God. How do we apply the principle here? Well there's lots to think about here but let me just mention a couple of things as we finish. Our ministry team, both the paid members of staff and those who volunteer from within the laity to be involved heavily in the ministry here, that should reflect the interdependence of men and women. That's crucial. But the eldership, those who are called to teach with authority, for that's how you lead God's people, well, God has given that role in his household to men. Not all men, but only men. Those set aside for that task, those called by the community to that task, that's their role in the dance. So no matter how many churches we plan in the coming years, if we are honouring God's principle of headship, we will always send a man to head up that work. And no matter how many services we have on a Sunday, if we are honouring God's principle of headship, we will always have a called and tested man in the pulpit. And again, that's a challenge, isn't it, in the wider church because again and again the issue of competence rears its head. Uh, how, many, how many times have we come across, perhaps you've come across it right now in my presence, the, the presence of an incompetent male preacher? And you can think of a dozen women who do a much better job It's the sort of argument that sees us moving closer and closer to the ordination of women to uh, the episcopate. But this is not about competence, this is about God-ordained roles. He is very wise, trust him. And of course the test for those charged with headship in the church, those teaching with authority, is is that headship being exercised in a servant-hearted way that, that leads as Christ led? And finally, women, do you live in this community joyfully under male headship? How does that show itself in the way you think and respond to sermons? Do you pray for good decisions to be made by the male leaders of this church? We need lots of prayer. Uh, Does the way you speak to and of those in leadership show honour? And if our gatherings are, are... In our gatherings, are we expressing our interdependence as men and women, with women participating fully as they do in this passage? 
Let me say, if you look, at, just as we finish now, at our service sheet, you'll see there that we blew it at 9.15. Uh, the service at 9.15 was led by a man, a man preached, a man prayed, a man read. No interdependence, it's a one-man dance. We did a little bit better in this service. We had a husband and wife pray, lead us in prayer, Heather read. It should look a lot more like that if we are reflecting the principle of headship and interdependence here. As we close, uh, let me just say this. The dance we are a part of in our marriages and as a church, it's on show. Not only in our world, showing them a better way than any human revolution could, could bring, a better way to flourish as men and women, but even more than that, did you see this strange phrase in verse 10, because of the angels? What's that about? Well, here's what I think it's about. Heaven is watching your household Your marriage, this church, is displaying God's infinite wisdom to the heavenly realms. As we relate as men and women here in this place, all heaven is watching. God is displaying his wisdom, the wisdom of his revolution to the heavenly realms. So let us take our roles very seriously. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I do thank you that you are indeed a good and wise God, uh, that you don't leave us scrambling around in the dark, unsure of what it means to live as creatures made in your image, uh, that you in your wisdom have declared your good purposes. Help us to trust you. And where we sin, where we mar those relationships, either by refusing to honour them or by taking them on in a cruel and, and ungodly way. Help us repent of that quickly. Father God, we pray that in our marriages in this church family and in the whole household of God, we would be the men and women that you would call us to be. And we pray this for your glory. Amen.